Hello, it's 30th of June 2019 and this is episode 107 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? I feel like I've broken my record and I feel really boring, <laughs> but not very Star Warsy. Um, beyond preparing stuff for this spotlight for this episode because we're going to be talking about masculinity in Star Wars and we've done unusually thorough um, notes with lots of quotes and things so I've had fun preparing for that and reading various my articles and books and stuff so that's been fun but yeah that's kind of the extent of my Star Warsy stuff how about you? I've just been enjoying seeing Daisy give more interviews because we haven't seen her for a while. Not since Celebration, really. Yeah. No, same. That was also really nice. And I think the heat in England right now probably just made me forget that that happened. Which is bad <laughs> we're about to talk about what she said in those interviews. So I better start remembering pretty damn soon. It might just be fresher in my mind because I also got to see Ophelia this week. So it's been a bit of a Daisy fest. Why didn't you give a little review? I really loved it. Awesome. Um, apparently it had mixed reviews when it showed at Sundance, was it last year? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taken a while to get its limited release, but um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I've always felt like that character has deserved more. Um, so it's really nice to see an adaptation that actually focuses on her. And that's not to like diminish what Shakespeare did with Hamlet, obviously, because that's a masterpiece. Yes. And it's Hamlet. So Ophelia <laughs> is kind of in and out as needed. But it was really cool to see what she was doing in those moments when Hamlet's away or, you know, she's just off figuring things out for herself. And I think that Daisy did an incredible job. And Naomi Watts did as well. Um, it's almost like the movie centers more on their relationship than Ophelia's and Hamlet's. So it has more of that um, mother-daughter kind of fairy tale dynamic as opposed to like a romance um but obviously the romance is there too that sounds awesome um would you say that what happens in the movie does it like go against what happens in the play it's like an alternative reading okay. so the next time i see hamlet um i might kind of try and reconcile it with what happens here because it's like conceivable it's it's different i don't want to spoil it but um, I really enjoyed what they did with it. So Okay, exciting. Yeah, no, I really like those sorts of stories that take a well-known story and then give it a twist or view it from a different perspective. So I'm really excited for it to eventually get a UK release, which hasn't been announced yet, but hopefully one day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, even if it doesn't end up in the cinemas, hopefully it'll be streamed somewhere. Exactly, yeah. The UK isn't so primitive that it lacks VOD or anything, so (laughs) (laughs) there's always hope. Um, Yeah, so on the note of Daisy Ridley, let's start talking about some of the things she's been saying while on her promo tour for Ophelia. So the first thing we're going to talk about is a little interview that she gave on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. So, Kirsty, how about you're Jimmy Fallon and I'm (laughs) Daisy Ridley? Okay. Okay, awesome. You go. This is the last of the franchise. This is it. There's no more Star Wars. I mean, there's more Star Wars. There's just no more of this one. <laughs> but this is this is major. Yeah. When you first got the script, did you get the script? That's my question. Or did they give you pieces of the script? 
No, JJ was like, hey, want to meet up? I was like, sure. I was like, yeah, I want to hear the story. So JJ Abrams, the director-writer, he calls you up and says, He said, do you want to meet up? I'll tell you about it. I was like, sure. This was a few months before we started, and we were in a public, you know, a cafe, and he fully told me the story from start to finish, and he was speaking at a normal volume, and I was like, people can hear us. But regardless, the story changed. So, like, he told me the thing, and then a few months later, it changed. It did? And were you happy with the ending? Um, yeah, it's epic. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. There's no bigger word than epic. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> so I hope people enjoyed that dramatic reading. I I happen to appreciate that she didn't again go for it's satisfying. Oh my god, make it stop, that word. I'm sure that turns up in one of the later interviews, because she did like 10 interviews this day. It was crazy. She must have been actually exhausted. Yeah. Um. But yeah, satisfying is obviously on the list of approved words from... <laughs> Lucasfilm PR because it's it's just been constant. It's like we get it, we will be satisfied. Yeah, and everyone's been using it. Like Oscar's been using it. I'm pretty sure Adam must have used it at some point. It's just relentless. It's like chill, guys, chill. Mm-hmm. At least give them a thesaurus and say there's like approved words from the thesaurus that they can use that sound like satisfying, but are not that word. So. Hmm. But yeah, um, what do you think about these comments? I think she's alluded before to the story changing like a bit during the process. But this was quite interesting to me because the way she's put it, it makes it sound like it changed a lot. What What do you think? Um, I, I think it might have changed a lot, especially from she must have known about the Trevorrow version as well. Mm. So to see that progression. Yeah, I, I can I can believe that. Yeah. Do you think that's what she's talking about? Changes from the Trevorrow version to JJ's? Well, no, because what she's saying here is that JJ told her something and then actually that's not ended up being the ending. Mm. Um, or at least like enough has changed in it to, for her to, to comment on that. But yeah. I think that's normal too, you know. If you look at how The Force Awakens evolved, that was a big work in progress that they ironed out lots of the kinks as well. So, Yeah, no, that's true. And... Although it's not clear here, I think in the past she specified that it was like a question of adding extra beats and that sort of thing. So it didn't sound so much like a complete rewrite of the story, just like adjustments and tweaks and stuff, which is completely natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, and it's epic, Kirsty. Like how excited <laughs> does knowing that it's epic make you feel? I am really shocked. <laughs> the ending of the Skywalker saga would be epic. A fun game to play with these sorts of quotes from the actors would just be to like say the complete inverse of what they're saying you know like what would happen if they just said the complete opposite of this so (laughs) if like Jimmy Fallon's like but this is major and she's like no not really it's not major it's not important yeah it's it's very small really it's unremarkable You don't have to see it in the cinema, you can wait. It's very modest, it's sort of like a VOD thing. Just, nah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you got to find like, amusement in these things. Um, yeah, and she gave another nice quote about the similarities between Ray and Ophelia. And she said, I see commonality between Ray and Ophelia because I think their paths are set by them, regardless of the outside pressures they have. 
And yeah, I, I like that very much because that is very much in line with my personal read of Rey, which is that she's not like buffeted around by these forces beyond her control, especially in The Last Jedi, because that movie, as far as I'm concerned, is all about her making choices and taking decisive action and deciding what she wants her story to be, despite what others are telling her to do. So yeah, that that sounds great to me. And I like that it's being reinforced that that is the type of character that Rey is. Yeah, I think this is what, or at least it's what I think when people bring out that overused phrase, strong female character. Mm. It's really that what we should be talking about is a character's agency, because sometimes female characters aren't given that much agency. But I think what Daisy's emphasizing here, and maybe this is like what she looks for in a role, um, is that a female character can have all of these pressures and be trying to be led one way or another by male characters around her but it's the choices that she makes she still does have those choices and that um yeah she creates her own path and as you say we see that very much in the last jedi which is one of the reasons why we love her so much and again kind of what i was talking about earlier with ophelia in the context of hamlet um she's kind of just part of his story um and obviously meets her untimely end but in Ophelia it's kind of setting that straight and being like actually there was much more going on with this character and she was able to make choices and stood her ground so yeah which is very empowering and yeah like it's the sort of thing where you can make more of an argument for The Force Awakens being a situation where Rey is much more at the mercy of external forces and is thrust into situations beyond her control and without her choice well, I think that just makes sense as the first act, right? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's a necessary stage in her journey. But that's what makes the developments in The Last Jedi so important for me. Because mm. it shows her taking that control, which she didn't necessarily have in the first movie. Yeah. We get, obviously, moments where she, like, accepts the call and picks up the saber and everything. But yeah, she is kind of swept along with the adventure, as a lot of the other characters are too, especially Finn. Oh yeah. Um, But they're still able to make choices along the way, and those choices matter. Yeah, she still has agency. It's just on the micro level more than the macro level in The Force Awakens, whereas I Mm. think it is very much on the macro level for The Last Jedi. So yeah, both movies do different things, and it's really good and cool, and we love it. Then Daisy was interviewed on Good Morning America, and she had some things to say about feelings. Like, how about this time? I'm Good Morning America, and you're Daisy. <laughs> okay. Okay. But we can't have you here and not talk about Star Wars. Only 177 days away, but who's <laughs> counting until the world sees <laughs> the rise of Skywalker? Kerry Russell said the script made her cry. What's your reaction? Or what was your reaction to the script? Daisy. The thing that was really amazing is a lot of the crew did all three films. So it was really emotional anyway. But there were a few scenes that we did where everyone was really moved. And a lot of the time the crew were doing their jobs. So it's not like such an emotional thing. It's like more technical. But it was. Some bits are. And a lot of it is really moving. I found it very emotional. Yeah, finishing. I was. Yes. Look. Now you, we have to wait that long to see it. John Boyega posted a picture of him, 
you and Oscar Isaac. What was it like, the final days of shooting on the film? Just a quick interruption. I love how, like, the basics at GMA, like, clearly think that is actually a photo from <laughs> the, the final day. <laughs> Sorry, oh I'm not being It's bitch. just that they don't care that much. <laughs> they, they're they paid to pretend that they care, but they're like, whatever, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, they haven't ascended to our superior level of yeah. appreciation. <laughs> yeah, one, it was actually JJ who posted that picture first. I'm sure John shared it afterwards. Yeah. But uh, and also it's already been confirmed and you can kind of work it out if you're like us and are super cool and we're tracking (laughs) the production (laughs) you know that that was not taken in the final days of shooting that was when they were filming in Jordan but it's neither here nor there um, um, actually, so they-, they finished wrapping in Jordan <laughs> in autumn of 2018, so it's clearly not from the last day of shooting. Uh, Sorry. Well, either way, Daisy doesn't bother correcting them. Uh, she says, well, John rapped, so I was like already hysterically crying, and then I rapped. And I did a speech, and I can't remember what I said. I kept going, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. The whole crew was there, it was like embarrassing, and obviously people recorded it, and I still can't tell you what I said. I was like, I just had the best time in my whole life. I'm really excited to see it. Oh, bless her. I get like that too. <laughs> when everyone's looking at you, you're just like, oh, sorry. Oh, thank you. Mm. Yeah. No, at work recently, we had like a case where someone was leaving to go to another job and they literally gathered all the employees around this person who was leaving and oh. they tried to get her to make a speech. It was just like, um, thanks for everything. Can I need to stop <laughs> now because I'm about to cry. And I was yeah. like, this is so brutal. Why do we do this to people? <laughs> It's a lot, and even actors, you know, she's right. Like, you would be really emotional at the end of shooting these three movies with all of these people who've been around that long. Mm. Um, it would feel like a bit of pressure. Yeah. Um, the most interesting part for me, and I'm sure this has been kind of like, you could probably work this out from other things, like we were talking about before, like the sleuthing on social media and that, but she says that John rapped before her. Mm so um, I'm assuming it was around the same time but maybe just like a couple of days before or something like that yeah I have vague recollections of people like Instagram stalking the actors and the makeup artists and stuff and people figuring out that I think John and Daisy wrapped in the same week so right. I don't think there was much in it basically but yeah probably just a few days before and Oscar had wrapped a little earlier right yeah that's my recollection I need to go back to the um, Matrix that I keep while recording all of this stuff. No, I don't actually have that. (laughs) Well, no one said anything about Adam, but we did have that sneaky picture from his makeup artist that was then hastily deleted when she realised that people were actually following her and paying attention. (laughs) She posted that on the day that JJ said everything was finished, when he posted the picture of these three. Mm. Um, But it's, again, it's kind of hard to know if that means that she actually finished working that day or if she'd finished a few days before too. So, but yeah, it's all very mysterious. Exactly, so many questions. Um, Okay, finally, we then get to comments Daisy has had to make about whether she would return to Star Wars. So, I'll be BuzzFeed. Because this is so fun. Um, So the last film in the current Star Wars trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker, is done. But there's rumours about your character, Rey, maybe in the next trilogy. Can you comment? Is that true? Are you thinking about it? I mean, I can say I'm not in the next trilogy. No. I think, because Ryan always said, if it is the Ryan one, or if it's the guys that did Game of Thrones, I'm not sure. 
Whichever one it was, they always said it was going to be a separate story. So I'm not. No. But would you want to come back to the universe? I mean, it's a great universe. I've had a great time. (laughs) That is a perfect example of a non-answer. Yeah. That's a very canny answer because she's not closing any doors for herself, but she's also not committing to anything. So, Yeah. yeah, it's very smart because... I really strongly doubt that Daisy really wants to do anything else Star Wars for like the next five, possibly ten years. You know, she probably just wants to go and forge a career and do very different things and build up a name for herself as an actress independent of Star Wars, which is completely understandable. But who's to say how you would feel in 10, 15 years? I certainly have no idea how I'll feel about anything in 10 to 15 years. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that lines up with what Lucasfilm are planning to do anyway. I mean, they're talking about these trilogies. I can understand Daisy's confusion about which one's coming first because (laughs) things aren't super clear for us at the moment. Mm -hmm. We think it's the Game of Thrones guys, but who knows? Um, But yeah, I think it was... Is it a site called We Got This Covered or something like that? They kind of had this report slash rumour that Daisy had agreed to be in the next trilogy and it's not the case. Debunked. Yeah, there's so much, I hate to use this expression, but there's so much fake news about Star Wars right now, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it must be just because people click on it, so you can make money from it. Yeah, exactly, and it's very depressing to see, it's like, guys, just find other stuff to report on. If there really (laughs) is no Star Wars news, please don't just make Star Wars news up, it's just too depressing. And people shouldn't do it. Um, cool. Right, so it was a very thin on the ground week, I must say, for news. Like, literally, if Daisy had not been on that press tour for Ophelia, we would have had no news. So that is why we're lucky to have prepared a quite meaty spotlight discussion this time, which is nice. I think this will be the first one we've done in a while, because recently we've mostly been doing book reviews. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it'll be good to get back into the deep meeting analysis that we're so fond of. So, yeah, as I mentioned at the start of the show, this episode is going to focus on the topic of masculinity, specifically in the sequel trilogy, because obviously some of the important male characters in the sequel trilogy, like Han and Luke, they're also important characters in the original trilogy, but we will be touching on the journeys that those characters go through in the earlier films to some extent not in huge detail um but yeah very much we're mostly going to be concentrating on the sequel trilogy yeah and before we start we should perhaps acknowledge and kind of reiterate that we are two cis women um speaking about masculinity Mm -hmm. um as explored primarily or pretty much actually entirely by cis men yeah. Um, so we want to emphasize that, you know, we've got J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson, and then the writers and mythology experts that we're going to draw from as well. Uh, Robert Bly, Robert Johnson, Joseph Campbell, and of course, the male lead actors of the franchise. Um, so just kind of want to say that we're aware and we appreciate that we have an audience comprised of individ- individuals who identify across the gender spectrum um, from cis men to non-binary, gender fluid, trans mask and trans men. Um, and this is just from us interacting with twi- Twitter listeners. So that's presumably quite a small fraction of our audience. So we kind of just want to say up front that we understand that we have personal limitations. Um, 
in terms of how we discuss this, but there there are clear themes within the sequel trilogy and across Star Wars in general, right? Mm-hmm. That we'll go we'll go into um, on the subject of in air quotes masculinity, um, and it just kind of depends on the creators how rigid that that term would be or how subversive things can get because they do. Um, but basically, we would love to hear from people after they listen to this episode on what else we might have explored here, whether you agree with our points or have something different to share. Um, for example, I know we have a number of listeners who had Canon Kylo Ren as trans, mm. and there may be others who perceive different male characters, such as Poe or Finn, similarly. Um, so if you feel comfortable sharing more about that, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, there are 100%, um, because... Yeah, our perspective is naturally limited by our experiences and how we identify and also by the sources we're relying on because we are leaning heavily into the whole mythological basis of Star Wars with this discussion. And like this may just be my admittedly quite limited reading, speaking, but as Kirsty mentioned, the people that we're going to quote from are mostly you're very typical stodgy like older white male (laughs) very straight um well and a lot of it is you know written in like the 80s oh yeah (laughs) for example exactly Um, it's quite dated and it's also important to say that a lot of it draws from Jungian psychology um which is a very interesting and valuable way of looking at things especially like art and creative products because a lot of like art and films and stuff, they are consciously informed by Jungian psychology and those concepts. But in terms of like the actual study of psychology, Jungian psychology is considered very outdated and retrograde and of limited usefulness at this point. So we are very much talking about this in the context of a creative product and a piece of art rather than trying to like get too deep with treating these characters like real people if, if that makes sense sorry i'm not sure if I'm totally it's a valid like lens of literary analysis but not not so much actual clinical psychology these days it's like you know talking about freudian symbolism mm. it's not something you would apply to real life necessarily but it's still valid as a way of looking at art exactly to start off um very late in the day I actually found an interesting quote from a chap called Roger Horrocks, who wrote a book, I believe, called Masculinity in Crisis. He wrote a very brief article, and this is from the mid-90s. So again, it suffers that problem of being quite outdated. But I found some of the statements that were made here quite relevant to some of the dilemmas that we see with the male characters in the films. So I was just going to read out a bit. Um, So Horrocks says... Manhood as we know it in our society requires such a self-destructive identity, a deeply masochistic self-denial, a shrinkage of the self, a turning away from whole areas of life, that the man who obeys the demands of masculinity has become only half human. This is the constant frenody I hear from those men who come to see me in therapy. To become the man I was supposed to be, I had to destroy my most vulnerable side, my sensitivity, my femininity, my creativity, and I also had to pretend to be both more powerful and less powerful than I feel. 
So I'll stop there so it goes on, but obviously don't want to just read another person's words for the whole podcast. But yeah, I feel like that's an interesting quote to start the discussion off with and frame things because I I do think we see a lot of this in pretty much all the male characters to various extents because some of the characters like Luke and Finn, when we meet them early on in their journeys, they are relatively well adjusted and they don't seem to have those self-destructive impulses that are being spoken about here whereas other characters like Kylo Ren throughout every film because he's (laughs) Kylo Ren and Poe in The Last Jedi to a lesser extent but it's still there they are more like destructive and more given to like just like ah, I got to destroy, got to use the power, got to like be assertive and active at all times without like thinking through the consequences of that or stepping back and being contemplative or sensitive. And yeah, you just see lots of examples of troubled men, <laughs> basically. Yeah, and I think this is something that George Lucas was consciously doing with the original and prequel trilogies too, but it seems... Um, more at the forefront of the sequel trilogy which is very interesting considering we have a female lead Mm. but I think what JJ and Ryan and others have managed to do so far and I assume that will continue with the themes of the rise of Skywalker is to use that as a contrast and it fits actually really well if you look at how Rey's heroine journey is going Mm. again for her it's that reunion of masculine and feminine too yeah Um, she's searching for something as well so I think as foils, whether it's looking at um, Ray's journey in terms of Luke and Kylo, and you can trace that right back to that first teaser poster we got, right? Mm. The symbolism is very on the nose. But even if you look at Finn's storyline with Rose or Poe's with Amelins and Leia's, um, I think what they've done really well is to kind of highlight those contrasting relationships and show what each character is missing and what kind of journey they need to go on to kind of create that reunion for themselves and grow exactly yeah and I think that's such an important point as well because like it's another important thing to say at this point that the types of journeys that we talk about for these characters they're not essentially male stories or male journeys some of the authors that we were referring to um, presented them as quintessentially male journeys but again it's kind of retrograde and there's this whole idea of like men go off on like journeys and quests whereas women sit at home because they have everything all together and they don't need to discover anything about themselves which yeah I don't need to say that that's <laughs> endlessly problematic and silly um yeah. so yeah I think when people are listening to the discussion they'll probably find that the types of struggles and dilemmas that we're talking about as these male characters going through that doesn't mean they're exclusive to those characters or that they're intrinsically masculine. It's just that those are the sorts of struggles and issues that the filmmakers chose to have these characters deal with. It's complicated because I understand what each of these writers is trying to say there, even if they take it to a bit of an extreme Mm. or more of an extreme than we would. In terms of looking at how the patriarchy inhibits... um, masculinity right like that's where we get the term toxic masculinity from Mm. it's this idea that while men are considered in power in comparison to women in our society um that in turn inhibits how much emotion they can express Mm. 
um, how free they are to kind of be uninhibited from gender roles. Um, and that has its effect, you know? And a franchise like Star Wars, where things are violent and embedded in that context of war, has this real opportunity to kind of deconstruct that and ask these pretty deep questions um, to a mainstream audience. So it's kind of amazing that they are doing that. Yeah, and I really respect them for going there, basically, because it is quite a profound story, even though it's also simple in a paradoxical way. So, yeah, eternally grateful. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's why obviously especially with the last jedi but these themes were there in the force awakens it's just as we've said that was the first leg of it um so maybe they weren't so apparent um i think that's why it's got some of the backlash it has or why certain pockets of the fandom are so upset at the way it depicts masculine characters or this idea that oh they need to be saved by the women or Mm. um you know that they're not really ruling their own side of the story and the animosity towards Rose as a character. I know that there's definitely overtones of racism there too. Mm. Um, but in terms of her, like, I don't know, <laughs> from what people might perceive to be controlling Finn or shaping his story so that he doesn't have as much agency as they would they would think. I disagree, but I also understand why that backlash is there mm. because it can be hard for people to kind of watch this stuff and it goes against what they would consider to be like the traditional trajectory for male heroes. Yep. Um, But that's always been there for Star Wars. I mean, look at Luke. Mm. He was very different from the traditional male hero who, you know, I mean, dropping his saber and loving Vader. Yeah. That's, you know, that that is a big statement. Yeah, it's quite radical, really. but yeah, on that note about like fan backlash and some people struggling with how these characters are presented in the sequel trilogy, I think a good place to start would be Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is such an iconic character. And like again, I was not a young boy in the 1970s. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't speak to that. But from like various interviews I've seen with people who are in that position, like boys who grew up with Han Solo as their childhood hero that seems to be a group that took the depiction of Han Solo and the trajectory of that character particularly hard Um, and yeah I I think it's going to be interesting to explore why that is a little bit Um, so yeah Han obviously played by Harrison Ford who's like the quintessential like guy that every guy wants to be him every woman wants to be with him you know it's like Mm. that ultimate stereotype (laughs) or yeah at least the hollywood perception of it yeah exactly like it's the old-fashioned hollywood way of looking at stars basically harrison ford is that he's not super macho in the sense that he's like full of muscles and stuff but he's just a really cool suave guy you know and he just radiates this incredible charm and charisma that is just very attractive and the way he's depicted in the original trilogy i i quite like it because it's a nice balance of him being cool and cocky but he is also like quite sensitive and a bit of an old softy you know like how he is with leia in the empire strikes back there's lots of teasing and flirting including some like hashtag problematic tactics in how he like interacts with her but yeah, like ultimately he isn't like your 
totally like aggressive dunderhead of a hero that you might have found in like the 50s or the 60s he's he feels quite modern even now in many ways but also classic and yeah it's easy to understand why he became an icon basically from those movies yeah he's got like that appealing anti-hero thing where he's like the big softy underneath right and it's only when you get closer that you can see those vulnerabilities coming through because mm-hmm. um, there are parts of even you know the original Star Wars where he loses his composure and ends up having a very geeky embarrassing moment like when he's talking to the stormtroopers and then blows up the console because he screwed things up yeah um, so it's not as suave as he's initially depicted. That's kind of like what he wants to project. And then <laughs> yes. over the course of the trilogy, it kind of comes out that he's, and, and mostly through his interactions with Leia, really, that he has all these hidden insecurities. And I think a lot of those were then explored and deconstructed further with Solo that just came out last year. So Yeah. There's also interesting, like that opening sequence in Return of the Jedi, where obviously straight after he's got out of the Carbonite, He's blind and he's helpless. And it's so interesting to see him in that position because Leia is depicted as the saviour going in to rescue this like incredibly cool collected guy. And it's quite refreshing that the film allows him to be vulnerable like that and weak. And it kind of makes a bit of a fool of him. <laughs> it like, makes him a laughing point to an extent. But like not excessively so. You know, It's not mocking him. It's just allowing him to be vulnerable for a brief moment and yeah i'm glad that they took such a nice balanced approach to the character so it would have been easy to make him a real asshole but he's just a lovable guy Mm -hmm. um yeah so then by the time we get to the force awakens we've obviously jumped forward around 30 years since return of the jedi happened and I know a big criticism of The Force Awakens, not from you or me, Kirsty, but from other people, is that The Force Awakens was perceived by some people as being a bit of a reset button for the character because it does take him back to like that old smuggler status and he's like uh, a rogue and a scoundrel once again, basically. And I know that disappointed some people because obviously in the original trilogy he underwent this journey from selfish to selfless by going back to like save Luke in the rebellion and then eventually like rising up in the ranks of the rebellion to become was it a general by Return of the Jedi? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So to become a general. And people were like, What happened with this guy? What led to him just going back to his old ways as a smuggler and running away from everything? So I think that was problematic for people because it was perceived as cowardice. But like ultimately, as we learn more, and in my read of the situation, I don't think it was cowardice. It was more just a sense of complete helplessness and feeling powerless to change anything or like make any real difference after what happened with Ben. Because, yeah, I think he just felt lost as a father and... He, he just struggled to see how he could have any use in that situation and that's what led to the estrangement from Leia and the estrangement from everything he'd become really so he needed to retreat back into that earlier version of himself yeah and I think that's very relatable you know when we face hardships in our real lives it's tempting to return to what we know best right to the familiar mm-hmm. um and as you say he felt helpless um 
It's, so it's natural for people to ask those questions, but the film itself and the trilogy overall and the supplementary material we get, including the book Bloodline, um, indicates that this was actually quite a recent change for Han mm. because we find out that Ben only fell to the dark side within the last six years. Yeah. Um, so up until that point, he was very much with Leia. They were living in the the Republic's capital. It was peacetime, or what they thought was peacetime. Mm. Um, so I understand that concern, but to an extent, they do have to reset in order to have conflict and growth for these characters. And Han really does grow across The Force Awakens because, as we see, he he turns to accept that responsibility. Mm. Um, there's that key scene when he reunites with Leia and she encourages him to, you know, if you see our son, bring him home. Um, they have those conversations that they should probably have had a long time ago. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting as well because... Han did have a character arc in progression in the original trilogy, but it was all more like superficial and overt. You know, it was like a moment like you think that he's deserted his friends and gone off to pursue his own selfish smuggling ways. But no, there he is. He's come back to rescue everyone. Yay. And that's great. And it tells you a lot about how he's changed as a character. But I think that the growth that we see in The Force Awakens is much more psychological and internal. And is often just coming across through the acting in Harrison's face and just small gestures and what he does and like his mannerisms when he's talking with Leia and when he's interacting with Ben on the bridge and stuff. And yeah, I just think it's a really mature treatment of that character. And yeah, I, I love it. I think Han is at his best in The Force Awakens, to be honest, is easily where he's most interesting to me. Yeah, I think his character art was deeper and more nuanced than anyone anticipated. Like when we got that original trailer where at the end, of course, he's with Chewie and he says, Chewie, we're home. They arrive back on the Falcon. It's not just that they're literally finding the Falcon again, but that he is finding his way back home to everything that he had mm. and lost or chose to run away from. Um, running away from his shadow, classic. Um, and that that's him starting to return when he finds Rey and then gets kind of pulled back in, goes to Mars's in order to just get the droid to the resistance. But actually, she sees something in him too, that he needs to face the music. He needs to see Leia again. Mm. Um, and while, of course, it ends tragically for him, that is also him kind of setting things in motion for the rest of his family and making that sacrifice and kind of making peace with things and expressing his love to his son whether you perceive that as too late or not mm. um i don't think it is i think it's key yeah same at this point i'd like to bring in a quote from a guy called robert johnson who is neither robert bly or ryan johnson despite the appearance otherwise um and he wrote a book called understanding masculine psychology that was recommended so i checked it out it's very short um and it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's some really interesting concepts and ideas, but it's also a little bit retrograde again in the way that I discussed in the introduction, so I won't dwell on it much. But yeah, I'm going to draw on a few quotes from that book here and there. Um, and to give people a little bit more context, the book basically takes the Orphurian legends of Parsifal and the Fisher King, and it uses those as a framework for understanding masculine psychology as per the title 
so yeah, I'm not going to go in heavy into the comparisons and the investigations he does of the myth because it just gets too intricate and complicated, especially given that it's not what we're talking about right now. But I will <laughs> draw on various sound bites as appropriate, just as really jumping pads for ideas and stuff. So yeah, this is one quote. No worse or frightening pain is possible to us than to realise that our capacity for love or beauty or happiness is limited. No further outward effort is possible if our inward capacity is wounded. And yeah, I find that a useful quote because we see that in hand very strongly. Um, and really, I think from the tie-in material, like what you find in Last Shot, where Han is depicted as being such a nervous and unprepared father who just feels inadequate all the time and feels like he doesn't know how to be a father to this child. And it's really sad because you can see that everything that he does with Ben is correct and that he cares about him and he loves him, but he's so crippled and held back by these insecurities and these doubts that it keeps him from being fully present and it almost creates this awful self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, that obviously leads to trouble down the road and yeah I think we're still seeing him struggle with those same insecurities and wounds for much of The Force Awakens until inspired by Leia he reaches that point where he's like no I am actually going to be there for my son regardless of the consequences and that's where he has reached a point of healing and resolution because he resolves at that point just to trust in nothing else but his love for his son and make himself incredibly vulnerable like in the most literal way possible because he's literally opening himself up to the possibility of death by going out to talk to Ben on the bridge but he's at peace with that and he's prepared for that and that's why it's such a powerful end point for him because it's not a situation that he's forced into against his will or he goes into unprepared or without having fought it through. It's an active choice that he makes and it's a way of reconciling himself with his past failures and how he might have let other people down through his own like inhibitions and stuff. So yeah, I find it very powerful and I think it's a great end point for him, basically. Yeah, and I think that's a very healing moment for the saga in general that I think will be stretched out as we talked about a couple of weeks ago um, when we were talking about things for Father's Day, the, the theme of fatherhood, the cycle of, um, I guess you could call it absent fatherhood or dysfunctional at least, <laughs> yeah. father and son uh, relationships across the saga. So even though this moment ends with tragedy and that Han dies and Ben kills him, um, I think that overall, when you look back at this trilogy as it is complete, it, it will be a sense of healing um, for the Skywalker saga. Yeah. 100% it's done with purpose. So it makes me sad because sometimes I'll read about people like and their takes on that scene in particular, Hans death, and they'll see it as a nihilistic moment and a hopeless moment. And that makes me feel so sad um, because I understand how people reach that conclusion because obviously Han does fail in that moment. He go went out there to bring his son back to the light and he doesn't achieve that. And yeah, like part of why my conviction for why Ben does have to come back to the light, why that conviction is so strong is because you need that redemption to happen 
for Han's sacrifice to have meaning and for his purpose to have been fulfilled. Because if it isn't, then yes, it does become a bit nihilistic. But I think when you see the new trilogy, the sequel trilogy, in its wholeness with all three parts viewed alongside each other, then it should feel very satisfying and redemptive and healing. Yeah. And to come back to the theme of what we're talking about, masculinity and femininity, I do think that that moment, um, and even the earlier moment where he has that conversation with Leia, and then she walks off and kind of leaves him to himself, I think it's just before the interrogation scene Mm. starts. Mm -hmm. He is left by himself and he has such a haunted, sad look on his face. Mm. Um, But I do think that's the moment where he decides, okay, if I do see Ben... This is the choice I'm going to make. Yeah. Um, or at least he's reflecting on it at that moment. Yeah. I don't know if he does decide for sure until he actually sees Ben, but it's definitely on his mind in a way that it wasn't just beforehand when he was dismissing it as, oh, well, there's nothing more we could have done. Yeah. Exactly. He's like one step closer to that. Yeah. So allowing him to, allowing himself to feel emotionally vulnerable and physically vulnerable, um, I do think that is what we could understand to be Han's reunion of the masculine and feminine. Yeah, exactly. And it's not an accident that that transition within Han in terms of him becoming resolved to like bring Ben back, that happens after that meeting with Leia. Because obviously mm-hmm. on a obviously on a literal level, there's Han reuniting with his estranged wife and them finding solace and comfort in each other. But on a symbolic level it's also about Han accepting that feminine inner part of himself that he's rejected and been running away from for so long yeah i think we'll talk about it later when we get to luke but i do think there's a similar moment for him at the end of the last jedi when he reunites with leia too mm-hmm. exactly cool is there anything else we want to say about han <laughs> i can't think of anything right now but just it it is kind of watch this space and that'll be the case of all of the characters because obviously the the story is not complete Yep. Um, but as we say, we have hope for that. So, Exactly. It'd be very interesting to revisit this discussion after the rise of Skywalker, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, right, then let's move on to Luke, who obviously became very prominent in The Last Jedi. Um, so yeah, as we've touched upon before, Luke in the original trilogy, he is not really your traditional macho, macho hero <laughs> by any means. And that's I mean that in the best possible way he feels like a much more sensitive like gentle sort of hero throughout the original films like even going back to like the early stages of A New Hope he's always defined by his curiosity and he's always like oddly vulnerable and dependent on other people like if Han is like a modern hero then Luke is a very ancient type of hero because he's the sort of heroic archetype you find in like ancient myths where you have this like young innocent who is just innately good basically and it comes to them effortlessly and they just carry that within themselves and are this shining force for goodness throughout like their journeys even though they have struggles and like challenges that face them. Yeah, like how do you find Luke in the original trilogy, Kirsty? No, fairly similar to what you're saying in that um, contrasting with Han, who has this physicality about him and kind of swaggers around, 
we're seeing Luke in the process of becoming the hero. Mm. So obviously by the beginning of Return of the Jedi, despite what happens over the course of that movie, um, he's he's got this image of being very put together and confident and, oh yes, I'm a Jedi Knight now. Um, but how did he get to that point? Yeah. Um, and then there's the big contrast between when you first see him in Star Wars. Um, I know lots of people joke about him being like whiny. <laughs> um but he's essentially he's a teenage boy right mm-hmm. um and there's so much that he doesn't know about his own place in the world and who his father is and these powers that are kind of lying dormant within him and as as a result of that he's very much reliant on these masculine older mentors like obi-wan and yoda and then of course his father so it's very different as we'll see and as we do see and why maybe again some fans were not happy about that when it comes to the sequel trilogy um luke has grown beyond that in lots of ways but he's also given up Mm. um and it's understandable why when you start to unfold the story but um i do think that's a very relatable older older character thing to kind of go through Mm that um, you may have had all these successes and triumphs in your youth and and grown, but then real life sometimes gets in the way and makes you feel defeated and like you just want to give up and retreat. Yeah. Um, and I do think that relates a lot to what we're talking about. Exactly. And I think there's also that thing where the greater your achievements, then the harder the fall, you know, because... Luke's achievements are not like on a small modest scale they're literally galaxy saving level achievements so that is going to give you all kinds of complexes (laughs) basically and it's going to give you a certain confidence in your own abilities and your own potential to like save everything and protect everyone and then when you realize that your ability in that regard is limited in some way or there's someone you can't save and there's something you can't help, then that's going to be hugely damaging and lead to just this break, basically. And that's what happens to Luke. Yeah, exactly. That's the explicit part of his story, right? The the whole, oh, I was Luke Skywalker, the legend. Mm. He says so (laughs) begrudgingly. (laughs) Um, I've got this quote here from Ryan Johnson at South by Southwest Festival last March. Um, he was in conversation with Mark Hamill and Joanna Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, if you look at any classic hero's myth that is actually worth its salt, at the beginning of the hero's journey, like with King Arthur, he pulls the sword from the stone and he's ascendant. He has setbacks, but he unites all the kingdoms. But then if you keep reading, when it deals with the hero's life as they get into middle age and beyond, it always starts to get into darker places. And there's a reason for that. It's because myths were not made to sell action figures. Myths are made to reflect the most difficult transitions we go through in life. Mm. And I think, again, maybe that's why it's so difficult for some people to watch Luke in The Last Jedi, because he is going through that really difficult transition of accepting that things don't always go the way they want. Um, that even when we have huge triumphs in life, they can be followed by huge, huge failures. Mm. Um, and it's natural to want to retreat and give up. But over the course of the movie, again, we see him come back into the fold and accept that and find that peace. Exactly. And it's all about renegotiating his place in the galaxy and also the story, because he can't be that hero, that saviour that he was to his father. 
and he needs to accept that because like he, all he can accept basically at the start of the last jedi is that he like han in the force awakens is powerless and he can't do anything that is essentially luke's mindset when ray first encounters him he's given up because he sincerely believes that he can't do any good that he was doing more harm than benefit to the galaxy by being an active part of it which is the reason why he doesn't go back to Leia. So I don't think it's a selfish choice in Luke's mind. I think he really does believe he's doing the right thing by everyone, by just retreating and living as a hermit. And yeah, like his growth and his journey over the course of The Last Jedi is realising that he can still do good and like have a role to play. It just can't be the role that he was playing before. So it's about him learning what that new role will be. Um, yep, so we have a quote here from Mark Hamill that he gave in an interview to EW. Luke made a huge mistake in thinking that his nephew was the chosen one, so he invested everything he had in Kylo, much like Obi-Wan did with my character, Hamill says, and he is betrayed with tragic consequences. Luke feels responsible for that. That's the primary obstacle he has to rejoining the world and his place in the Jedi hierarchy, you know? It's that guilt, that feeling that it's his fault, that he didn't detect the darkness in him until it was too late. And yeah, that's an interesting like view to have from Mark, straight from the horse's mouth. Because yeah, it really does zero in again that it's the failure with Ben Solo specifically that kick-started this whole horrible process to like self-denial and exile basically for Luke and yeah it's so interesting that like Kylo is the pivot point for so many of these crises basically Mm -hmm. yeah I mean it makes sense in terms of like the Skywalker family that's those moments where these older heroes feel like they lost him you know the next generation um, or failed him that's kind of the crux of everything that relates to this aspect of the story this trilogy Mm. um but yeah i mean i think all of this stuff um in terms of the sequel trilogy for luke is what enriches his character's exploration of masculinity it's a different stage of his life it's when he's older he's made mistakes um he's going through this painful transition as ryan said and as we alluded to before he has that third meeting with the goddess moment at the end of The Last Jedi. Mm. Um, Because, of course, now it's known that Leia is his sister, (laughs) that in A New Hope she was positioned more as his anima, and then then at the end of Return of the Jedi, when he learns the truth about their past and their connection, and has kind of ascended himself by accepting Vader as the shadow, um, he reaches that kind of atonement with her her assistance. Mm. And I think we kind of see that paralleled here in that he's apologising to her for his failures and abandonment, Um, and he receives her immediate acceptance and love. Yep. And um, by returning to her, he's then able to reassure her to keep the hope alive regarding her son and the future of her cause. So I think that really does create this perfect moment. And it's kind of what Robert Bly, Robert Johnson, and, and these others that we're talking about, um, what they're referring to when it comes to that reunion of masculine and feminine in the self. Because then Luke has the strength to walk out, face Ben, face his failures... Um, and do it in a way that allows him to achieve that peace and ascend into the Force. 
Yep. Exactly. And yeah, in relation to that discussion of like that tension between masculine and feminine is also like worth touching upon that relationship between Ray and Luke as well. Because um, yeah, again, to drag out some Robert Johnson quotes, um, he has this to say about a broken man and how he needs to heal. He says, for a man to be truly healed, he must allow something entirely different from himself to enter into his consciousness and change him. A man must consent to look to a foolish, innocent, adolescent part of himself for his cure. The inner fool is the one who can touch his wound. And so I think both of those quotes, which are separate, relate to Ray, like just in different ways, because Ray is both very different from Luke and also this real reminder of what Luke used to be as a young person himself, because she embodies that whole spirit of the new hope from the original trilogy that Luke used to in the old films from the 70s. So she's reminding him of what he used to be, essentially. But more than that, she's not the same as him. And that's very critical. She's very different and she has a different way of doing things and a different approach. I think that Ray is more rebellious than Luke was with Yoda. Um, that's my read anyway. So I get the impression that like Ray struggled through maybe like two, three days max with Luke before she was like, nope, out of here. Um, whereas with Yoda, Luke was there for weeks and weeks and weeks and was very patient, even though he got frustrated and like tired of Yoda's bullshit, basically. So Luke is confronted with this more rebellious spirit and this completely different outlook on this nephew, this person that Luke has written off because he considers him hopeless and beyond saving. And yeah, I think that's transformative for him. And it's really like encapsulated by that speech that Yoda gives him which really draws everything together and helps Luke to make peace of his new role oh no I totally agree I think that's a turning moment for him um and of course the interaction with Rey just before that is too she has such a fierceness to her that even though as he's saying like this is not going to go the way you think once she leaves and he's like looking after the falcon as it as it disappears. I think it is him like kind of being shook by how um, adamant she is and how much faith she has in mm. someone who she's lost faith, who he's lost faith in. Exactly, and it's really beautiful and inspiring in that way. It's a more personal story than what we had with Yoda and Luke on Dagobah. Because in that situation, Luke was basically asking for permission to go and Yoda was denying that permission. And Ray has no intention of asking for permission. She's like, uh, you're not bossing me around. Bye bye. <laughs> um, which I appreciate. And yeah, with Luke, it was just a different type of dilemma because it was less personal to Yoda, I guess. And you weren't really seeing any development of Yoda's masculinity as much as a little gr green alien can have like a clearly defined concept of masculinity although he does to be fair as like an authority figure and stuff and that's another episode for another time um, but yeah for Luke in that conflict with Rey and in their different perspectives on Kylo Ren it is much more intimate and much more seismic 
for both of them because they both have such a personal intimate connection with that character and that makes the feeling behind both of their reactions in that moment much more powerful and deeply felt yeah and then when we get to yoda's lesson it's so huge for luke because he is basically saying it's okay to fail it's actually really important that we do sometimes Mm. and that we learn from it and keep going exactly and it's also about that sense of letting go and like knowing that you're not like derelict in your duty by leaving them to it basically that that's an inevitable natural thing and that part of finding that fulfillment as a person is about accepting that and giving them the freedom to go off and make their own choices and make their own mistakes which is Mm -hmm. a very classic lesson that any parent or parental figure needs to learn basically yeah and i think coming back to this idea of masculinity and being in crisis embodied within luke i think when he's talking about how he you know leia trusted me with her son and i failed her as i said before since the first installment of star wars leia has kind of been that goddess figure for luke Mm. um and to fail her is like him failing his feminine side um so to face that again and say okay i did screw up i'm probably not the person to bring him back but i'm gonna try and i'm gonna hold him off as long as i can and um, make this sacrifice and i accept that and i love you i think that is luke reaching that that stage for him yep no 100 percent. yeah and like han had that moment of healing where like he was able to resolve that like inner brokenness and like reunite the masculine and feminine that's exactly what luke has at the end of the last jedi and that's again why we see him in peace so it's important to know that like the last time we see han he's reaching out to touch his son's face yes he's shocked about being like lightsabered through the stomach it's not very pleasant no one wants that but he does still like end his life on a note of compassion and love he's not like angry or vengeful you know he's at peace with himself because of that motivator that's driving him and luke equally is also at peace with himself because he's been able to resolve those broken halves that he had going on Mm -hmm. i think if we look at um poe and finn's final scenes in the last jedi as well we'll kind of see echoes of that um and the subversion of it with kylo's last scene really Mm. um in terms of the rejection of the feminine um, but that's what keeps the conflict going until Act Three. So. <laughs> exactly. Not everything can be happy, happy. <laughs> so let's move on to a discussion of the young sequel trilogy characters that say all the new characters that are unique to those movies. Um, and we'll start off with Poe and Finn before closing out with the famous Kylo Ren. Um, yep. So Poe in The Force Awakens, I think it's safe to say that he's decidedly a supporting character. Um, I guess of the other Star Wars characters, he's closest to like someone like Wedge in terms of he's the heroic pilot character who doesn't really show up much. He's just a cool dude who flies super good. Um, also of a bit he's also got a dash of Han Solo I think because he has that like smart ass attitude going on and that is kind of reminiscent of Han 
in the way that he talks back to people and he's defiant. So he definitely has personality and individualities, which makes him an appealing character and he's popular for a reason. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that The Last Jedi is really where he's made to shine and gains a lot of depth and complexity. No, I agree. Um, I think it surprised me how much they chose to develop him because we were were saying before we started recording, before The Last Jedi was released, we'd speculated a lot on what Ryan's research in terms of, you know, he talked on Twitter about reading Robert Bly, um, a little book on the human shadow, um, what that could mean for Kylo Ren's arc. Um, and going back to those early episodes, I do feel like we got pretty close in terms of Ben being let down and cast out by the heroic male authority figures, Han and Luke, and therefore seeking their approval elsewhere. Um, seeing more of his humanity, as Adam Driver was alluding to in interviews at the time, JJ's comments about Snow grooming him, etc. Um, and like, even later on in the pastel, when Ryan got to comments about how we can relate to Kylo, Kylo's... Um, adolescent anger and stuff like that Mm. but i think it's worth revisiting all of that now because we hadn't anticipated exactly how much ryan would choose to do with poe as a character oh yeah um and i think he said stuff at the time as people were kind of questioning okay so where are you going to go with all of these characters he was saying stuff like i've got got to think of the most difficult thing these characters can face Mm. and then he he included poe in that too and I think he actually acknowledged, you know, there wasn't an awful lot to Poe in The Force Awakens. He's very much a presence, especially within Finn's arc. Um, but there wasn't an awful lot of conflict for the character to deal with. Yeah. He didn't really have his own story. He existed to serve someone else's story. That someone else being Finn. <laughs> yeah. So that must have been really important to Ryan. And I assume that Oscar is quite pleased with that because he's a very talented actor. And now he has a meaty narrative to play with. Yeah. So I really enjoy Poe in The Last Jedi. Same. Like, it's just a much more interesting character all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in terms of how he's actually depicted in The Last Jedi, is interesting because obviously Ryan gave Poe as foils, like, two older, powerful women in Leia and Holdo. And they're very much his main opposing forces in the sense that they're the people he's usually butting heads with and yeah it's interesting because it really draws out some quintessentially like masculine like if if i dare say so like aspects of his personality in that he is very convinced that he has the right way of doing things and he has all the right tactics and all the right answers And it's so fascinating to see how The Last Jedi deconstructs Poe's self-belief. This is not necessarily saying that confidence and conviction are bad. Like, it's not about going there. It's about saying it's important to moderate some of the more extreme elements of yourself and, like, allowing other perspectives and, like, nuance your views and like consider different courses of action based on what other people are telling you and think things through because he's kind of like a ball in the china shop in the last jedi and that he runs off like impulse and instinct which are traditionally all great things for a heroic character to do and those are the sorts of like hunches and actions that usually have great payoffs and result in the big victories so we see moments like that even in the original trilogy where luke just 
goes on instinct and allows the force to guide him and he successfully blows up the Death Star. Woohoo! Like, and it works great. But The Last Jedi is about showing that those sorts of tactics and that approach does not always work. And that's where it's important to step back and reassess things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like going back to Poe in The Force Awakens, he's kind of characterized as this pretty easygoing, humorous guy. Like even when he's in very dangerous situations, he has these comedic lines for levity. Um, And he has that like happy-go-lucky vibe, right? You know, even while escaping the First Order with Finn or trying to resist Kylo's interrogation, he's kind of goading him. Um, You never really get the sense that he's truly afraid. But all of that is kind of tested in The Last Jedi and (laughs) he responds with a lot of anger and stress, um, which is understandable given the situations that he's in. But we get these... (laughs) I don't know if they're intended to be humorous, but I find them funny when he's, you know, kicking something over in frustration um, as if that's going to get Holdo to take him more seriously as opposed to get him off the bridge, you know, mm. get him out of here because he's acting kind of like a child um, and won't listen. Um, but yeah, like you say, that's his test that he loses Leia's guidance, um, who kind of symbolizes that mother figure for him in the, the idea here is that they've known each other for a while. Um, he trusts her judgment even as he kind of does things his own way Mm. and then of course she reacts by slapping him Um, but that that's kind of replaced with the leadership of Holdo who is positioned as a contrast even though she has this uh, history with Leia when she comes in and because of what she looks like Poe reacts with surprise that someone so in air quotes, feminine, you know, she has her pink slash purple hair and a beautiful dress and beautiful jewellery. He's surprised by that. Mm. Um, Which is interesting because Leia looks pretty glamorous in The Last Jedi too, but maybe he's used to that on her, but not others. Yeah, maybe she's the exception that he allows. (laughs) Because his arc here, again, is what we've been talking about. It's accepting that duality of masculine and feminine within himself um, and that feminine is symbolized by the differing modes of leadership that Leia and Amalyn espouse to him. Mm. Um, and all he has to do is listen, but um, it takes him a while to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, we have that moment of realization for him at the end when he wakes up and everything's kind of been happening around him. So at that point, he has to listen to what the plan is. And Commander Dacey explains it, and Leia's right there to kind of soothe him and uh, further explain. Um, what Amalyn was doing, where she was coming from, and the sacrifice that she's made at that point. Mm. And then you finally get that that dawning realisation for him. Exactly. Yeah, it's just... I like it. It's always so nuanced, and it felt like true to the real world in that it's not about saying that Poe may never use his favourite tactics and may never like rely on his judgement, it's just saying that sometimes <laughs> that's not the way to go. This is like on crates, it's really satisfying to see him really putting the lessons he's learned into action um, because it really demonstrates that he's gone through that growth experience and like taken on the advice that he's been given, like having been like inspired by what Holdo did and realised the strength of her convictions and 
probably reassessed every conversation they ever had and is filled with like wow a bit of regret to be honest and really rethinking everything and yeah it's nice because you see him go on a complete arc just within the basis of that one film which is like relatively unusual so I think it's the clearest case of that happening because I think the other characters arcs they either start in earlier films and are then resolved in a sequel trilogy movie or they're still hanging a bit unresolved and waiting for like a final chapter I feel like Poe has kind of reached his final form kind of you know and I'm, I'm not sure how much more of a journey there is for him to go on in the rise of skywalker basically yeah in terms of this aspect at least yeah because of course by the end we see him taking up that mantle of leader um leia passing the torch and it's pretty much even explicitly stated when he's begging finn not to do what he was doing at the beginning of the movie like what amounts to a suicide run against the first order um got this quote here from robert bly uh he says something in the adolescent male wants risk courts danger goes out to the edge even to the edge of death um of course this can apply to kylo poe and finn's arcs at various stages of the sequel trilogy Mm. but i feel like for poe this is really quite explicit because at the beginning of the movie that's what he's doing so we can see him in his adolescent stage there and of course it's figurative like Poe isn't actually a teenager he's in his 30s um, but we have that with all of the sequel trilogy characters to an extent they're supposed to embody these stages of the transition from childhood to adulthood right yeah um, so The Last Jedi really is Poe's movie for growth and by the end he's accepting that role from Leia as as the new leader so that's his passage to adulthood mm-hmm. exactly it's a nice metaphorical journey for him Yeah, and in terms of the duality of masculine and feminine for Poe, in some moments, it's really on the nose. I think I've mentioned this before, but there are the framings of certain shots when Poe's kind of, air quotes, mansplaining to Amelin, like, we don't have enough fuel. And she's like, yes, thank you for making me aware. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There are only other young women in the background of those shots. Um, this has to have been a conscious choice from Ryan they're doing their jobs quietly and efficiently and Poe's just kind of getting in there and getting right up in Alan's face Um, (laughs) it's not subtle but I think it's done really well yeah no I agree it's um, quite satisfying actually to see it play out because yeah like it makes it clear like while still being subtextual what you're meant to be getting from those moments um and yeah it's a shame that a lot of people didn't get that (laughs) i see so many Uh, bad hot takes on holdo (laughs) i think people do but that's what makes them angry because Mm. heaven forbid the male character have to learn a lesson and and go on a journey of growth (laughs) and heaven forbid a female character (laughs) be part of that in a way that she's you know maybe teaching a thing or two yeah she's older and probably does know best in some capacity um yeah, I think some people didn't like that, but that's one of the reasons we do like it. Yeah, I think it's another one of those cases, like the whole Han situation where the truth hurts, that like with Han, people don't like being confronted with the reality that sometimes people fail and yeah, they, they can win in a way, like with big air quotes around it, by acknowledging the failure and trying to atone for it in some way, which is what Han does. 
and with Poe, I think people don't like the fact that Poe is just explicitly shown to be wrong and that he needs correction. And yeah, it bothers people for a whole mm. myriad of reasons that yeah, we won't go into. Yeah, I mean, it all works out okay. Like, yes, there have been failures and there's damage. And at the beginning, it's oh, permission to get into an X-Wing and blow something up. But by the end, it's him cautioning others not to do those things. So that growth is really satisfying. That is Poe um, reuniting with the feminine in this mythological sense. Um, we have a story here. We have this real richness to this character now. Exactly. And I, I kind of agree with you in terms of like wondering where his development can go in The Rise of Skywalker, but I'm also really interested to see how he does manage that role of leadership. Yeah, no, it's true. And really, it's whatever JJ makes of it. Because I don't think any of us could have predicted after The Force Awakens that Poe would be taken in the direction he was taken in The Last Jedi, basically. So they can make of the character whatever they want. And I'm sure they'll use him well in whatever capacity they choose. Although I think I would be surprised if he's given such a clear narrative thread as he was in The Last Jedi. I'm not expecting that, but as long as it's done well and it serves a good purpose, then I'd be 100% up for it. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a case of him again, um, not in terms of screen time necessarily, because, you know, Poe's great to look at and he's great to be on the screen and Oscar's an amazing actor, but in terms of what his arc actually consists of or how he serves in the other characters, I think he could be a really valuable tool in terms of furthering Finn and Ray's development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I look forward to that. Exactly. Because he's kind of like the leader um, inspiring them now. So Yeah, so hopefully he'll take more of like a mentor role. So let's move on to the discussion of Finn. So yeah, with Finn, we obviously meet him for the first time at the very beginning of The Force Awakens on Jakku, where he's a nervous First Order soldier on his first mission, basically. Um, I think there's probably other like minor missions depicted in comics and stuff, but it's pretty clear, I think, that the mission to Jakku is like the first proper one for him, and that he's coming fresh off the training program, basically. So he's very green, and I think he's quite similar to Luke in that he's this shining example of just innate goodness, and that he has this strong, inbuilt moral compass that guides him and helps him to make the right choices. So he knows that the right choice in relation to what he experiences on Jakku is to get the hell out of there and leave the First Order, which is what he does. And then I think it's interesting to see how The Force Awakens makes Finn's story a story of someone who knew that they had to do this one thing, they had to get away from the First Order, but then doesn't know what they're doing next, basically. So... Finn's journey in The Force Awakens is about finding a purpose and finding direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love that opening scene so much. For all of these new characters, really. Um, you have this like morally questionable moment where Poe is basically the catalyst in terms of him shooting um, Finn's friend, mm -hmm. the Stormtrooper. Um, and then you get that encounter between Finn and Kylo, that wordless encounter where Kylo's obviously sensing through the Force that something is going on with Finn. There's this big moral questioning um, and him making that choice. 
by failing to fire. So you can see that as a failure or a success, depending on your point of view. But for Kylo, obviously, when he calls him a traitor later on, it's key that he thinks that, on the surface at least, he considers Finn a failure. But I think actually there's more going on under the surface and he's projecting and um, sees a lot of commonality between him and Finn, or at least the way things could have gone for him if he'd chosen to leave with his father. Yeah. So Finn and Kylo, for The Force Awakens especially, not so much in The Last Jedi, but I'm kind of hoping it will come full circle with their interactions in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, They have this really interesting foil relationship. Yeah. They're kind of like inverse mirrors of each other, aren't they? Where... Like Finn essentially makes the good choices that Kylo could have and should have made, um, and yeah, like it's quite fascinating to see how they relate to each other on that level, because Finn perceives Kylo as some like awful, like demonic, ghoulish force. Basically, he's absolutely terrified of him, which makes his moment of taking the saber and fighting him at the end of the Force Awakens so powerful and important because it's Finn confronting that fear and like to get Jungian that shadow part of himself you could suggest and the point of that confrontation isn't that Finn needs to win the fight is that he had the conviction and the bravery to stand up to Kylo in the first place that's what's significant and meaningful for him Mm -hmm. and then in terms of his relationship with Phasma as well it's almost like this twist on the dark stepmother figure mm, interesting yeah which i think is quite unique for a male hero that way you know you don't you don't see that that often anyway um but i do think for for finn the first order obviously embodies bodies this shadow that he's been trying to escape he runs away from it um when he wakes up in the last jedi he's trying to run away again mm-hmm. um but then kind of through his interactions with rose and dj he realizes he has to pick a side and he has to face it, um, and he does. Exactly. It's at the end of The Force Awakens. Like Finn has made a choice about where his allegiance lies, but it's a very small-scale micro-choice in that his allegiance lies with Rey, and it's not so much about the Resistance or anything bigger than that. He still has quite a narrow sphere that he's concerned with, essentially. And Rose and DJ are all about opening up opening him up to the world basically and like helping him look beyond himself in various ways and yeah it's just interesting how they serve as foils to him because yeah just as Poe has foils in Holdo and Leia Finn has foils in Rose and DJ Um, and they serve very different purposes as well which is interesting because Rose is very much about bringing out awareness of hope and possibility and love whereas DJ is much more about bringing home the bitter reality of things to Finn because Finn is very very naive and he's easily like influenced and led basically and ultimately we see his morality being shaped over the course of the film and it's really interesting to see him develop in that way Mm mm-hmm um, I want to share another quote by Robert Bly from a little book on the human shadow here that I think applies to Rose and Finn's relationship. Our culture teaches us from early infancy to split and polarise dark and light, which I call here mother and father. So some people admire the right-thinking, well-lit side of the personality, and that group, the group one, can associate with the father if one wants to, 
and some admire the left-thinking, poorly lit side, and that group, one, can associate with the mother if one wants to, and mythologically with the great mother. Most artists, poets, and musicians belong to the second group, and love intuition, music, the feminine, owls, and the ocean. The right-thinking group loves action, commerce, and empire. Um, this really reminded me of Rose and Finn, especially during the Canto Bite sequences, mm. um, because we know that Rose and her sister grew up dreaming of seeing wild animals, and when she talks about the Favias and they actually get to race on them through Canto Bite, you know, that's like this central turning point for Finn, I think. Mm. And I think that um, on this vague macro symbolic level is them kind of the, the the masculine and feminine clashing in terms of them rushing through the city and trashing what Robert Bly calls the action, the commerce, what we could consider the masculine side. Because when they get to Canto Bight, Finn is fascinated by all that, right? Yeah. The glamour, the glitz. And it takes Rose to point out, you know, you need to look closer. Yeah. Um, and when they get to the cliff near the ocean, Finn looks at her differently because she's setting the Favia free and he's kind of he's kind of learning there, right? He's he's seen through that facade. Yeah. Um, I think that's the feminine and masculine beginning to reunite. Um, and of course later we see the completion of that on Crate, because as we said before, at the end of the movie, Finn is kind of paralleling Poe at the beginning of the movie. Um, he's committed to his cause, but he's reckless, rash, and ultimately willing to die a violent death. And Rose, possibly because she saw what happened with Paige, um, she's the feminine and she saves him and kisses him and teaches him that love is what matters. Yeah. Um, um, after that, we see him reunite with Ray. And again, that's a soft action of embracing someone. Yeah. And um, his last scene is Finn acting softly, caring for Rose as he places a blanket over her sleeping form. So I I think he's learned a great deal there in terms of how Rose has shaped him and influenced him and kind of, I don't know, it all comes back to that yeah. amazing line that Rose gives at the end, that it's about saving what we love. And I think for Finn, that is the reunion of the masculine and feminine. Yeah, no, that's really well stated. Yeah, like it's interesting if you think about that scene where like Rose like rushes into his ship like on crate to stop him from making this futile sacrifice. That on a symbolic level is really the feminine overpowering the masculine, like in terms of the ideological underpinnings of those choices and the like thinking that underlies them basically and the mindsets that underlie them. And I think that's really powerful because I think usually it's almost always the other way around um, and it's nice to have that depicted in such a explicit way and that it's depicted as such a brave and heroic choice. Yeah and again going forward I hope that's something that we see in terms of how Finn chooses to develop in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. How much of Rose's influence is going to be there. Exactly. I'm very curious to see what sort of hero he will have become by the point of The Rise of Skywalker. Because obviously we understand that that movie is going to take place a bit of the way in the future. So he's going to be further along in his journey. And I think it will be almost like Luke in Return of the Jedi, where we're going to see quite a put-together Finn. And he's going to be much more confident and self-assured. 
I hope he's still going to have an arc in that there's going to be complexity and lessons to learn and a journey to go on. And I don't doubt that there will be. But I don't think we're going to see like another repeat of a similar story where he's still trying to find himself and stuff. So I think he probably has a good idea of what he believes in and where he stands now. Yeah, and I think that confidence in where he is is going to be in contrast to where Ray is. Because mm. both Daisy and um, John have made allusions. Obviously, they have to be vague. <laughs> they can't give details. But if you look through kind of everything that we've been given so far in terms of what they're allowed to say for the rise of Skywalker, both John and Daisy have kind of alluded to a more complex side to Finn and Ray's relationship. Right. I think John said something like um, he's trying to figure out what's going on with Ray. And Daisy said, I think it was in Vanity Fair, that um, she's obviously she's friends with Finn and Poe and they go on these missions together, but she's at a distance because of her connection with the Force and maybe what's unsaid there is her connection with Ben slash Kylo. Mm. So I think that's going to play into their relationship a little bit. Exactly. I think there's lots of exciting dramatic potential in that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think from Finn's point of view, if he's all together and assured and knows what side he's on and is conflict-free in that regard, he's, he's going to expect other people to be the same way. And well, why, why are you feeling differently? Why do you have these concerns and doubts and kind of torn loyalties? Um, it's almost like he's going to be in the position of Poe at the beginning of The Last Jedi, reassuring, oh, we've got you, you're on our side. Um, and Finn's actually secretly thinking, no, I don't belong here. Mm. Um, cool. So do we think we've um, ironed off everything we want to say about Finn? I think so. It's, it's interesting because his story's... It, I think it's... Uh, well, we said it earlier in terms of Poe, but his journey develops so much um, from The Force Awakens to The Last Jedi that he doesn't feel like a different character, but um, some of the relationships shift um, in terms of him like being a foil or Kylo being a foil for him. We don't see that as much in The Last Jedi. Right? Yes. It's more like Finn and Poe are set up as foils to each other almost. Or Poe is to Kylo in a more abstract way. Um, so I think things are sh- shifting from movie to movie, but that's a great way to get the most out of each of these characters and explore those relationships. Yeah, exactly. They're all kind of rationed out in terms of who has key relationships with who, which makes sense. Yeah, and those relationships happen whether the characters actually interact directly or not. It's done really well in terms of connecting the different strands of the the subplots. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So let's move on to the final character we want to talk about, who's Mr. Kylo Ren, who... (laughs) Yeah, he's the ultimate like example of destructive masculinity in Star Wars, as far as I'm concerned. To and it's ridiculously overt. Like nothing is subtle about how this is communicated to us, to the point of him literally destroying things at every reasonable opportunity. And yeah, he's just a ridiculous mess. I think it's the least subtle, not only because he's the Skywalker and they're hot messes, um, but because he's the one who's clearly set up to be the the wounded masculine within Rey's heroine journey, right? Yes. So so to heal herself, uh, Kylo Ren also has to be healed. Exactly. 
And that's why it's still very much a work in progress by the end of Act 2. Yeah. Like, and again, to draw on Robert Johnson, we have this quote. She may be the one who notices, even before the man himself is aware of it, that there is suffering and a haunting sense of injury and incompleteness in him. A man suffering in this way is often driven to do idiotic things to cure the wound and ease the desperation he feels. So, yeah, I think that sums up Kylo and what Ray observes in him to a T. Because she's acutely aware that he's a person who's suffering and damaged and he's lacking something. And she feels compassion for him in response to that. And she wants to help him and she wants to help bring him back. And obviously he rejects that help. And so she washes her hands of him, understandably. But yeah, it's a very, very overt depiction of that interplay between masculine and feminine and that push and pull between them and how like neither one really is complete without the other Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean (laughs) that quote makes me laugh in a way because he very much is driven to do idiotic things throughout the force awakens and the last jedi yes He, he does feel that desperation he's lashing out blindly almost there's not really a sense of strategy or tactics behind what Kylo chooses to do. He's very much in the moment and reacting to his pain. Yeah. And I find that the best part of that quote, actually, the part about desperation. So I think you see that in Kylo so strongly. He's just floundering. He's searching still, I think, for what Finn was searching for in The Force Awakens, which is a sense of purpose and direction. He deludes himself, I think, into imagining he has purpose and direction in taking over the First Order and becoming Supreme Leader. But I don't think that's going to be the end of the story from the overt telegraphing we're getting from various means, basically. And also just from the way the story has built up until now. Like, it's not depicted as a triumph for an attainment of wholeness that he becomes supreme leader at the end of the last jedi he's still depicted as a thoroughly broken person who's missing some fundamental part of himself mm-hmm. yeah um uh, this is the point where i want to share one of my favorite ever joseph campbell quotes because i feel like it is so perfect for ray and kylo mm-hmm. um the wound is the wound of my passion and the agony of my love for this creature the only one who can heal me is the one who delivered the blow. Um, he said this during recording The Power of Myth with Boo Moyers um, in a section where they were talking about love and the goddess. So I think he's talking about it from the male perspective, but Ray and Kylo are clearly connected and paralleled and both have these physical and emotional wounds now. Mm. Um, and there's this sense that without that reunion neither of them will be complete in the end yeah that's why we have such high hopes for the rise of skywalker um but yeah it's so interesting to see like how kylo ren is used um and i think a lot of thought was given to exactly what purpose this type of character would serve in the sequel trilogy and why should we have this specific model of masculinity as the villain of this new saga so there's an interview that kathleen kennedy gave to a french magazine at the start of 2016 which was found and transcribed by a tumblr user 
called Mad Woman in the Attic, which is a great name. Um, yeah, and this is the question. You really wanted Adam Driver for this role. What made him the perfect Kylo Ren? And then Kathleen Kennedy responds. One of the most interesting aspects of Kylo Ren is his young age. Most of the time, villains are damaged, troubled, and older. He's the first two, but yeah. <laughs> Making the new Star's villain a 30-year-old man was a captivating choice. We could take advantage from a troubled adolescence and a past we know very little about. There we could find this tension between light and dark which dominates all the Star Wars universe. We could use it as a metaphor for the path that leads a young adult to his accomplished adult life. The characters who can be drawn to the dark side and seduced by all sorts of experiences that might be dangerous are compelling for us. For today's audience, it's an original, fascinating and appealing character. When we look at our own lives, it all depends on the choices we've made. Kylo Ren seems to have taken many bad decisions, but they aren't necessarily bad decisions within the context of Star Wars, where they can lead to almost anything. This story reflects the real world. Many kids evolve in a political environment that can be difficult to decipher, and many events suggest that people are drawn to danger, trouble and agitation. In terms of international policy, there's a sense that we live in a time full of upheavals. The political structure of the Star Wars narratives reflects this in a unique way. Kylo Ren represents this dark side of society that can be appealing when we don't know which side to choose, and right and wrong become very vague concepts. All these aspects make Kylo Ren a really complex character and offer us many different options for future plots. So I, I really love that quote. So I think it's one of the fullest articulations of why they made the choice to make Kylo Ren Kylo Ren, basically, because they had endless possibilities for how they wanted to frame this like dark shadow force in the sequel trilogy. And they clearly put a lot of care and thought into making the choices that they did. Mm -hmm. And even though she doesn't mention Rey explicitly in contrast, I do think that kind of what's left unsaid here is that because they were raised in such different environments and Kylo or Ben, as he was called growing up, um, was kind of embedded in this political conflict and strife. And as a Skywalker targeted by people like Snoke, Mm. Um, there was all this weight of expectation on him whereas contrasting with that we have Rey who was living this life of stagnation and isolation on Jakku it wasn't a comfortable life by any means definitely not saying that <laughs> yes. um, but she was sheltered from being used in that way um, mm. or being targeted because she was a nobody um, so I think they're really set up as contrast in that way um, but there's this underlying thing, whereas, well, if Ray had been in that position, how would things have gone differently or the same for her? Yeah, exactly. And they find that commonality within The Last Jedi. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And yeah, one of the recurring things you see with Kylo Ren is he can't bear to be vulnerable, basically. And... Like, I won't dwell on it too long, so I know we've spoken about it before, and it's like one of the first meta I ever wrote. But like that goes down even to the level of the costuming. Like it's telegraphed to us in a very simple visual way that he does not like to be vulnerable because he always covers every single inch of his skin and he wears a mask when he has absolutely no need to wear a mask whatsoever. It's all about protection and 
hiding any part of himself that might seem vulnerable or human or weak or feminine or anything like that and yeah like you see it right down to his actions where his actions are all about denying any aspect of vulnerability that might be threatening to creep into him so you have it where he when he meets Los Santeca, an older man slash father figure at the start of The Force Awakens and he's reminded of his past and that weak in air quotes version of himself that he sought to deny he kills the old man and then when he's confronted by Han Solo who reminds him of all that like childhood trauma and the sense of rejection and sense of not being loved enough he kills that man (laughs) you're gonna notice a theme guys now you get to Snoke who's an older man slash father figure who like basically seeks to like put bring Kylo underfoot and make him his creature and enslave him like as his apprentice. Kylo kills that man. <laughs> and then Ray, that there's gonna be an exception here. And then Ray, who's a younger woman, and she seeks to bring Kylo Ren back to the light and draw out that compassionate part of himself and care for others. He pushes her away, basically. He doesn't kill well, her. Well, first, he tries to draw her onto the masculine side or the underworld. Yes. we could see it, right? Yeah, yeah. Literally, while they're stood in hell. Yeah. This red room. Yes. Um, and obviously, she rejects that. But he betrays the fact that she's come to mean something to him there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he pushes her away through those actions and that clumsy wording and the terrible things he's saying and doing (laughs) yeah exactly and it's important to know that of all these like relationships that i'm covering in this list like that relationship with ray as kirsty so wisely observed is the only one where there is any attempt to like move towards that person rather than move away from them all the others is basically almost like instant and like right gotta kill you now like there isn't much deliberation or doubt it's quite confident the whole time with Ray, there is a genuine like contemplation of oh I can bring her towards me rather than I need to instantly push her away um yeah which is interesting to observe and then to round off the sequence you have Luke who's another old man slash father figure who attempts to remind Kylo of like who he used to be and Kylo tries to kill him but he obviously can't because Luke's just a projection and yeah, we noticed this running theme over and over and over again of Kylo desperately trying to assert control over these situations and assert power because, yeah, he just can like come to terms with his own vulnerability. And that's, I think, what we're going to need to see him do to become whole and to grow as a character in The Rise of Skywalker. We're going to need to see him allow in that vulnerability and accept the, air quotes, weaker parts of himself Mm -hmm. yeah i mean at that point he's the usurper right he's as you know as you point out killed all these older masculine figures (laughs) he's risen to the top in air quotes he's now supreme leader but really actually he's on his knees with this pleading expression looking at a woman he cares about and um was ultimately unable to hurt leia too so it's this idea that yes, he's you know usurped and betrayed his way to the top in terms of the masculine sense of self, 
Uh, but is he complete? Is he happy? No. Mm. Um, he's still missing that feminine sense of self. Exactly. Um, yeah. And things are left on that note. Yep. So that's for the rise of Skywalker to tackle, basically. And I know I'm, for one, very intrigued to see where they go with it. Same. Obviously, there's so much else to say uh, about Kylo Ren specifically. I'm aware that we've made him sound like a bit of a Neanderthal by focusing primarily on the masculine aspects of that character, particularly his destructive masculinity. But there are also fascinating feminine aspects to that character, such as his emotional vulnerability and his openness with his feelings and we absolutely want to discuss those aspects of Kylo Ren and we will get to that in due time. Yeah, I'm conscious of the fact that we still haven't managed to relate this back to what it means for the female characters or the feminine or specifically Rey in terms of her heroine journey but we will do that at a later date and we've talked about it before in terms of if you strip down what the heroine's journey is about it's it's the inverse of this in terms of the masculine and feminine. Um, and that's why we see it so clearly played out with these male characters. Yeah. Um, they're, do- they're doing a wonderful job of connecting all of that together um, and giving these male characters just as much depth. Um, yeah. Because they wouldn't necessarily have to do that. Um, but the story would suffer. But they're making a real effort there. Exactly. Um, and that enriches Ray's story. Yeah, okay, great. So I think that's where we're going to end today. So I'm Rachel. You can find me at Stars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye. Bye.